So this week in the Come Follow Me curriculum, we're going to be studying 2 Nephi chapters 1 through 5. This is the very end of Lehi's life where he's now presenting the final blessings, final exhortations to all of his posterity. Uh, he opens it up in chapter 1, speaking with his sons Laman and Lemuel and their children. He also includes in there Sam and even Zoram. It's interesting that Nephi doesn't give us the final blessing or the final exhortation from Lehi to himself. He, he gives us everybody else's blessing, but he leaves his own out. It's also interesting to note that when Lehi dies in chapter 4, uh, that event launches Nephi into probably one of the lowest points of his whole life where he, he opens up his heart to us, the reader, and lets us know how difficult that was for him in what we traditionally call Nephi's psalm in the second half of, of 2 Nephi chapter 4, so you can pay close attention to the process that Nephi goes through in how to overcome those feelings of being completely overwhelmed, knowing now he's the prophet, dad's gone, and those feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness, and then it's, it's fascinating to watch the process of how he comes out of that, uh, of that deep struggle that he's wrestling with. I want to I focus on 2 Nephi chapter 2, which happens to be Lehi's exhortations and teachings to his firstborn in the wilderness, Jacob, who is going to be one of the greatest uh, doctrinaires in the scripture later on, giving us some incredible uh, insight into the, the atonement of Jesus Christ and pride and and the role of men and women later on as he becomes the prophet after Nephi. So here's this young boy, he's not married yet, uh, in chapter 2, right before Lehi dies, and it's fascinating if you look carefully at chapter 2, how it opens, he addresses him, he tells him in verse 1, Jacob, I know that you were born in, in the wilderness and you've suffered great afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. And then Lehi does what Nephi opened the Book of Mormon with, he gives a nevertheless statement. In spite of your rough start, in spite of being born into a less than ideal circumstance, we were out in the wilderness, there were no comforts of home, you never got to have a peaceful, normal, play here, play there childhood because we were just fighting for survival out in the wilderness all through those first years of your life. In spite of that, nevertheless, verse 2, Jacob, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. For anybody that you know, and maybe it's you yourself, who was born into a less than ideal circumstance, this passage gives us great hope to say our past doesn't have to define our present and our future. God can actually take a really, really bad start to life, somebody born into a rough situation, and consecrate that for their gain. They can actually be a better person at the end of the day because of what they've had to come through. I, I think that's a beautiful principle. Notice as you jump down into chapter 2, verse 3, it says, "'Wherefore thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God.'" And now this next phrase is beautiful. It's one of my favorites in all of the Book of Mormon. 
Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed. Don't you find that a little interesting that Lehi doesn't say, Jacob, I know that someday you're going to be redeemed, or you will in the future be redeemed. He says, I know that thou art redeemed. He's speaking in a past tense to this young kid. Now, most of us would assume that here's this dying parent, he's filled with emotion, this is his last blessing to Jacob, we would assume that he would say, the reason you're redeemed, Jacob, is because you're such a good kid, you're so obedient, you do everything that we ask you to do, oh, how we love you, but that's not the reason Lehi gave. If you look carefully at the verse, he says, wherefore I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Jacob, I know you're redeemed because I know how righteous, how good, how perfect your Redeemer is. That's not the – that wasn't the outcome most of us were expecting as you just kind of read through this chapter logically. The other thing to consider here is Lehi – Lehi never said that phrase in Scripture. He's never recorded as having said that exact same phrase to Laman and Lemuel. Um, and yet, the righteousness of the Redeemer hasn't changed at all between Jacob and Laman and Lemuel, and yet he never talks to them in that, in that way. And that's peculiar because uh, you look later on at Jacob himself when he's teaching many years later, when he's teaching the people of Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 9 and 10, he's going to give some clarification to this and and the the role that salvation plays in in this process and redemption. Notice he says this. This is 2 Nephi chapter 10 verse 24, which would be a perfect cross-reference to put in your scriptures next to 2 Nephi 2 verse 3. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And remember that after ye are reconciled unto God, that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. I think what Lehi might be communicating to us here, one possible way to look at this is, Jacob, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer, because – that righteousness doesn't change – but because you've reconciled yourself at this young age, you've already turned your life over to God. Therefore, you have full access to the righteousness of thy Redeemer. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't hear him saying the same thing to Laman and Lemuel, because they haven't reconciled themselves to the will of God. They don't seem to want to do what God wants them to do, so they don't have the same access to Christ's righteousness as young Jacob does. He then launches this young boy into one of the most powerful sections of all of the scriptures regarding regarding agency, regarding our ability to choose, our ability to to, uh, make decisions for ourselves without being forced or or becoming robotic about this. So to do this section, let's begin with uh, the, the end of the story, which is verse 27. Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given unto them which are expedient unto man, and they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or 
to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and the power of the devil, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. Now, there are a lot of ways to do this. If we were to depict this as a a table, so to speak, so that we can picture four legs coming down, upholding this table, and we would say, um, okay, the table is our ability to choose. We are free. We have freedom to choose, to, to act, and to do whatever we, we decide we want to do and accept those consequences that go with it. That means there are some things that have to uphold, that have to be in place in order for me to have that freedom to choose. That's the, the, that freedom rests upon. Go back to verse 5, uh, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 5, and he says he'll give us a couple of these. And by the way, there are lots of ways that you can separate these out, so I'm just going to give you one approach. There are others. There's not only, not only one way to look at this. But verse 5 says, men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil, and the law is given unto men, and by the law no flesh is justified. So let's talk about that. So we first have to have a law, and we're putting these out of order, but you have to have a basic knowledge, you have to know good from evil. It does you no good to – you're not really free to choose if there's not a law. If it really doesn't matter what you do, then the freedom to choose doesn't mean much as far as our progression to become more like God or, if you choose, to become more like the devil. There's no, there's no way to really gauge our freedom if there isn't a standard, if there isn't a requirement, uh, a law. So with the law in place, it also doesn't do us any good. We don't ha – our freedom is limited if we don't know what the law is, if we don't know what good and what evil is. If somebody says you can go through door A or B, one leads to heaven, one leads to hell, your question is, well, which one is which? And they say, I don't know, you just have to pick one. That's not real freedom. Yeah, you can act, you can do things, but it's not what we would classify as agency, which is this struggle between good and evil within us to decide, I want to choose the right in the face of great uh, temptation to choose the wrong. So, if you want to increase your freedom, if you want more agency, if you want a greater sense of, of being able to live your life in a purposeful, meaningful way, learn more of God's laws. Learn more about the difference between good and evil. Now, interestingly, he takes, uh, he takes Jacob to a different level with the law here in the second half of verse 5. Notice he says, by the law, no flesh is justified. I want you to think of the last time that you were in a car, either driving or with somebody else, and a police officer pulled you over and came up and uh, asked for license and registration, went back to the car, and then came back a few moments later with a, uh, a gift certificate to the mall for $50 and said, hey, thank you for coming to a complete stop back there when you didn't know I was watching you. Keep up the good driving and have a good day. 
the law doesn't usually reward. The law doesn't justify. By the law, men are cut off. The law is there waiting to watch for when you break it so it can punish you. The law isn't watching for you to keep it so it can reward you. The law doesn't reward. Who does reward? Look at verse 6, wherefore redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah. It's Jesus who gives rewards. He's the law giver. The law itself doesn't reward you. Jesus gives you the rewards for, for keeping the law. We're, we're going to jump down to verse 11. Let's get another leg on our table. He says, for it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. Notice it's – he didn't use the preposition to. That would have been easier. If there's just an opposition to all things, then I can always be good. The reality is, is the greatest opposition is in all things. It's inside. Every system has opposition within it. So to have true agency, to have true freedom to choose and, and have those choices lead me towards God, there has to be a valid choice. It, it's not really agency if somebody says, okay, you can go through door A, it leads to heaven, and that's all you get. There's not a lot of opposition. The fact that there's a really enticing door B that leads me in a different direction and I'm going to have to choose to go through door A in the face of this opposition, that makes my choice to go through door A much more powerful and much more character developing. I learn more about Christ. I become more like him through that process of overcoming opposition. And then to kind of take that one step further, Lehi clarifies something because it would be similar to giving you the option to say, okay, you can come. I have here a freshly made pie. You can pick your favorite pie, whether it's lemon meringue or apple or pumpkin or coconut cream. I've got your favorite pie sitting here. You can eat this pie or you can eat this freshly laid cow pie. There's opposition to be sure. The cow pie is in opposition to this beautiful freshly made pie that you love. Here's the problem. That wouldn't really be a test of your agency. Just because it's in opposition to what you want uh, to eat over here doesn't qualify it as fully opposition. He clarifies that in verse 16, wherefore the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself, wherefore man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. Don't be surprised in a fallen world, don't be surprised when there's a part of you, and, and it's inside of you, when there's a part of you that actually wants to do things that are in opposition to good and righteousness and holiness. Don't be surprised when you want it really badly and it, it is extremely enticing. That is the true test of our agency. Now, when Satan wants to attack the agency of, of mankind, he can do it in a variety of ways. He can try to change 
our perception of the law, change laws of the land to, to decrease people's freedoms. He can try to limit how much you learn. We have prophets who have repeatedly told us, get all the education you can, study the scriptures every day. That's not just to check boxes. That's to increase in our capacity to know and understand good from evil and to understand the law and to be able to make better decisions in the face of these, these enticing opposition uh, elements that we face in mortality. The more we overcome those, the more agency, the more freedom, the more capacity to act that we get. Uh, you look at the world that we live in, there are some people who think, man, the commandments and the laws of God, they are so limiting. It's quite the opposite. Um, the more you keep the commandments, the more free to act you become, the more choices that, that become available to you. You want to talk to people who have given themselves over to saying, I don't need the law, I'm going to be free, I'm going to do whatever I want, then you go and look in your maximum security sections of prisons across the, the nation and you see what happens with freedom to choose when people disregard law and go against what knowledge of good and evil that they have and make poor choices, then you watch what happens as they become bound down by those consequences that flow from the choices. And uh, Satan wants us all to be miserable like unto him, like unto himself. So what does he do? He tries to get us to follow the pattern he did, which is disregard God's law and uh, sin against him, and now you're bound. So as you go through the rest of Second Nephi uh, and the rest of the Book of Mormon, pay close attention to how God's prophets are constantly inviting and encouraging and setting up uh, these, these doctrines and these ideas and these stories to try to help us understand God's law, no good from evil, stand up in the face of opposition and make the right choice even though the wrong choice is really enticing. There's another concept in 2 Nephi chapter 2 that is just extremely profound that I wanted to share just a few thoughts regarding that idea. Um, I don't know of anywhere in the scriptures that, that gives more light and, and understanding to the events surrounding Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the events of the fall than this chapter with Lehi teaching Jacob right before Lehi's death. He's, he's building upon this idea of agency that was given to, to the children of God and their first real use of that agency taking place in the Garden of Eden, which sets in motion that incredible event which is the second pillar of eternity. We have the creation, the fall, and the atonement. Uh, for many, many centuries, people in a religious context have looked at Adam and Eve and the events surrounding the fall as one of the greatest tragedies of all time. When from our perspective with Restoration Scripture, we look at it as creation, fall, and atonement all being put into place before the foundations of the world, implying that what happens in Eden does not 
kick plan B into, into motion. They're actually just working through the Lord's plan A. He knew everything that was going to happen and it's all planned in advance. Let's look at what Lehi teaches us as we compare that then with the actual events that we have access to in our scriptures from that, uh, that Garden of Eden. Beginning with chapter 2, verse 25, we begin with the famous uh, verse, one of the most powerful statements regarding the fall, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy. In Eden, uh, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and then in the Moses account, so a great corollary to what we're talking about here in 2 Nephi 2 would be to understand a little bit of what's going on in Moses chapter 3 uh, where the, the events actually take place. Listen very carefully to the wording that God gives in the commandment regarding the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, Moses 3, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, nevertheless thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee, but remember that I forbid it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. If you compare Moses 3 to the Genesis account, because this is just the Joe Smith translation that we're getting in the book of Moses, and you see what are the differences, what did the prophet Joseph add or take away from the Genesis account, you'll notice that there's an entire phrase here that is added. God said, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. And then this next part is the addition. He says, if you put a little parenthesis here, so eat of it, that's where the biblical account is, is we're, we're the same up to that point, then you could put a parenthesis in your scriptures where he says, never the less, and in a previous uh, recording we've talked about the significance of that word right there, putting greater emphasis on everything that comes after it, always the greater, nevertheless emphasis over here on this outcome, and so notice the addition, nevertheless, now let's put greater emphasis over here, thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee, but remember that I forbid it, and then you could close your parenthesis. Everything between those two parentheses is Joseph Smith's addition in Moses chapter 3. Adding a nevertheless statement to a commandment is kind of significant. You can imagine what Mount Sinai's language might have felt like had God said things like, thou shalt not kill, nevertheless thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee, but remember that I forbid it. It puts that command in a little different light. It feels different. The only scriptural command that I can find that's, that's really clear where God gives a thou shalt or a thou shalt not followed by a nevertheless statement, the only one I can find that's, that's clearly obvious is this one here in Moses chapter 3. 
what that does is that sets us up to look at the events surrounding the fall a little differently than maybe we, we traditionally view them. Instead of seeing the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, this one's good, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is horrible, it's bad, instead of seeing it that way, we know that God planted both trees in the midst of the garden based on the Moses account. Now with that foundation, we go back into 2 Nephi chapter 2, where Lehi is teaching young Jacob about the events surrounding the fall. Notice what he says about the trees. 2 Nephi chapter 2 verse 15, to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, after he had created our first parents, and the beasts of the field, and the fowls of the air, and in fine all things which are created, it must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. Which one's sweet, which one's bitter? Most people listening would say, well, that's, that's an obvious question because everybody knows that the fruit of the tree of life is the sweetest thing ever. What makes a fruit bitter? It means it's not ready to eat yet. It's not fully developed. It's not fully ripe. It's time. It's season hasn't come, so you're picking it prematurely. If the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is bitter, that means Adam and Eve are kind of messing up. They're picking it before its time. Another possible thing to, to look at here is what if the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is ripe? What if it is ready? Maybe, maybe Lehi is referring to this fruit as being the one that is sweet. It's ready to go, and it's a, it's a direct opposition to the tree of life, and as they partake of the fruit, then their eyes are opened and they get all of this knowledge of good and evil. So they have enough knowledge to be able to use agency to make a choice here. And that seems to be the emphasis that God is placing on this event is, Adam and Eve, you get to choose. You get to make the decision. The way that Joseph Fielding Smith interpreted this, this whole story was he said that God basically told Adam and Eve, as long as you want to stay here in this garden, you're welcome to stay here, but I forbid you to eat that fruit. You cannot eat that fruit and stay here. If you eat that fruit, you will die. You will be and sent out into the lone and dreary world, so to speak. In that context, now instead of viewing Eve as either a wicked or a horrible or um, an unintelligent person, as she has been portrayed for centuries in certain uh, uh, theological contexts and, and in speeches and writings, instead of viewing her that way, now we can pause and see our glorious Mother Eve, as President Nielsen has called her, holding a piece of fruit and thinking to herself, I have to make a decision. Either I can stay in this place, in this garden where fruits and flowers are just spontaneously growing and everything's taken care of, life is simple, life is easy, or I can sacrifice my ease and comforts of life in order to, to suffer and eventually die, but in the process, 
I will be able to bring life for others. All of a sudden, Mother Eve standing there, to me, for me personally, becomes one of the single greatest Christ-like figures in all of Scripture where she says, I'm going to partake of a fruit so that I can give life to other people and in the process I'm going to suffer and eventually die, which hearkens to Jesus in Gethsemane and on the cross saying, I'm going to partake of this bitter cup and in the process I'm going to give eternal life, potentiality, and, and immortality to all of God's children, but by so doing I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Um, that, that freedom of choice, that, that free will offering in those two gardens from Eve and Adam as well as hearkening then forward in time to the ultimate offering in a garden of Jesus Christ, that to me is beautiful because now it sets up these two trees as being portals, so to speak. The tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil becomes a portal through which God's children come in to mortal life and experience life and to grow and develop. And then the tree of life, we can partake of that fruit someday in the glorious future as we then hopefully inherit eternal life. We should thank the Lord for that glorious decision made by Mother Eve and Father Adam to partake of that fruit to allow us the opportunity to come into this life and begin working through our own fallen nature that we've inherited to be able to overcome those natural tendencies and to work on nurturing that, that seed that has been planted in our hearts so that someday we can return to heaven. Notice the end here. Let's go to verse 24. But behold, all things have been done in wisdom of him who knoweth all things. I don't see the events in, e in the Garden of Eden as a mistake. I see them as the Lord laying these out, giving Adam and Eve their agency and letting them choose. Gratefully, they both partook, thus opening the door for all of us. And now to close verse 26, and the Messiah cometh in the fullness of time that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil, to act for themselves and not to be acted upon, save it be by the punishment of the law at the great and last day, according to the commandments which God hath given. So one other, one final thing I want to point out here regarding the events in Eden and how they, how they might affect us. If you go back to 2 Nephi 2 verse 5, he's, Lehi is introducing this idea of men being instructed sufficiently to know good from evil. Adam and Eve were instructed sufficiently in that setting in Eden to know what what they could choose, what they couldn't choose, and what the outcomes would be. Notice he says, the law is given unto men, and by the law no flesh is justified, or by the law men are cut off, which is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They, they get cut off because they broke a law, a law of Eden. Now look how Lehi describes it. Yea, by the temporal law they were cut off, 
and also by the spiritual law they perish from that which is good and become miserable forever. It's interesting because God gave them two commandments, multiply and replenish the earth, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Ironically, he doesn't give a nevertheless statement after the first command, he only gives the nevertheless statement after the second command. So it's almost as if God's giving them two commandments but they're not on equal level with each other. The one command is an eternal law and it hasn't changed since they've, they, they were given it originally. To this day, the only commandment given in a temple ceiling to a couple kneeling across the altar is a repeat of the original command, multiply and replenish the earth. Interesting that nobody else ever, anywhere, at any time has ever been given that second command. It was only for them at that time. From Lehi's perspective, it's as if he's saying it was a temporal law and they broke a temporal law, a local law for that time, that place in Eden in order to keep the spiritual law, the eternal law of multiply and replenish the earth. So uh, as you contemplate the rest of the, your study of the Book of Mormon and as you look at your own life, as you look at your family members and the people you interact with, recognize that we're all children of Adam and Eve, we've all inherited these, these fallen natures, so to speak, and everybody's working to try to be as good as they can and to use their agency to overcome the oppositions that they're facing in their life, and we could probably be a little or a lot less judgmental with each other and especially a lot less judgmental with the person staring at you in the mirror move forward with faith, trusting that God knows what he's doing with us in this fallen world. If we'll rely more fully on him, then he will help us overcome the effects of this fall so that we can take advantage of growing this, this personal tree of life. I've said in other videos I read a lot of books, but the Book of Mormon is absolutely the most beautiful book, most engaging book, and of course the most correct book that I've ever read, and it draws us unto Jesus Christ. And it reveals to us the covenant path. And the covenant path is the way that we can find our way back into the presence of God. And remember, there's two elements to the covenant path. There's God's obligations, and those are best expressed in the Abrahamic covenant. And you can review those stories in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. And just real basically, uh, when you think about the Abrahamic covenant, it's actually God's covenant to Abraham. I mean, I love the title, Abrahamic Covenant, but it makes us think about Abraham instead of God. It's actually God's obligations. It's what God is supposed to be doing, what he's covenanted to do, which is to give us posterity, property, or promised land, priesthood, and prosperity. And the word prosperity means to have his presence with you. And then what he asks us to do is he reveals the commandments. He revealed these at Mount Sinai to Moses and the children of Israel. And the commandments are the covenantal instructions that we are all supposed to live to show our love and our loyalty back to God. He's loved us. This is how we show our love to him. And if you read the Book of Mormon and the Bible through this lens, and if you look for what is God asking us to do, that is our covenantal obligations. And when you see God acting, you can often understand it best through the Abrahamic covenant or the Mount Moriah covenant. So we get to 2 Nephi chapters 1 through 5, 
what we actually have in the first four chapters is Lehi as the great prophet of this tribe that he's led out of the land of Jerusalem into the new promised land. He gives his last will and testament. Now, this is very significant. Throughout the scriptures, when a great leader is about to die and there'll be a transition to a new leader, the leader will often talk about the things that matter most and give final word and counsel to his people. And we see that happening with Lehi. And if you go back and look at the Old Testament, we have the same thing going on. Moses, for example, his last will and testament is the entire book of Deuteronomy. Right? He knows he's not going to go into the promised land. He's about to die. And he gets on to another mountain, not Mount Sinai, and he delivers the commandments or the Mount Sinai covenant yet again to the people and lays out to them, if you're going to get into the promised land and occupy it and have all the blessings that God promised the fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here are the things you have to do. That's all of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, we also have similarly when Joshua is about to die and he says, choose ye this day whom you will serve. That statement comes from Joshua's last will and testament, the final speech that he gives to the people before he dies and then leadership transitions to somebody else. The prophet Samuel does a great speech. In fact, the people wanted a king. Remember, there was all this era of judges. And Samuel was the last judge. And the people said, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations of the earth to take us up to war against other nations. And the people forgot that God is the king and he's the divine warrior that will fight their battles. He's the one who prospers them and empowers them. But the people said, no, we want our own human king. And God said, fine, I will give you a human king. And we'll talk in future videos about what God expects of a king. And Samuel, in his final speeches, laid out all the problems of human kingship. And we'll see in future videos that human kingship often is the cause of entire populations going apostate and leaving the faith and also leaving God's covenant. So this is what a last will and testament is about, is the great words of a great leader, a great prophet, inviting people back into the covenant or reminding them of their covenantal obligations to God. So with that background, we should expect Lehi is a great leader who's fully within the Mosaic covenant and he totally understands what God will do for the people if the people are faithful. God willingly and fully offers all these things and the door is always open, but we have to walk through that door by keeping the commandments. So our access to the Abrahamic covenants is based on our faithfulness. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is freely offered, but are we willing to accept it? And we show that acceptance by keeping the commandments God has delivered. And this is what we see Lehi talking about. He reviews with his family the basic commandments that God expects for people to live, for them to live in peace and prosperity in the land of promise. And I'm going to read just a few verses here from 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 5. And Lehi said, Notwithstanding our afflictions, remember they had all these difficulties getting over to the promised land, we have obtained a land of promise, a land which is choice above all other lands, a land which the Lord God covenanted with me should be a land for the inheritance of my seed. Now remember, on God's covenantal obligations is to offer promised land to his people. And that 
he shows loyalty by doing that, loyalty to us. We return the, our love and loyalty by keeping the commandments. And so we should expect to hear Lehi talking about what are our covenantal obligations so we can live in peace and prosperity in the land. And he goes on and says, this is verse 9, I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments. The commandments are the instructional manual for how to keep the covenant and how to be in the covenant path. And he goes on, those who keep the commandments, they shall prosper upon the face of the land and they shall be kept from all other nations that they may possess this land unto themselves. And if it so be that they shall keep his commandments, they shall be blessed upon the face of this land. So he just says this again and again, keep the commandments. If you keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. That statement is the summary of our obligations within the Mosaic covenant. Now, there's more that, you could, that we could read here in 2 Nephi 1 through 5. My invitation for you, as you read these chapters, listen for how Lehi is inviting his family to keep the commandments. Furthermore, you might look for what exactly is he teaching his family that the commandments are. And most importantly, the covenant path is basically bounded by these two mountains, right? The Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai. And Jesus is the path. And so one of the most important things that we could do to reveal the covenant path is to reveal Jesus. Let me just read really briefly one small but powerful element where Jesus is revealed as a covenant path. And it's about Jesus Christ, 2 Nephi chapter 2, and it's in verse 6 and 7. Wherefore, redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offer himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law or the purposes of the law. And the law, again, is the covenant. Unto all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. If you remember, at Mount Moriah, Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. And God stopped him and gave him a lamb. That lamb was what was provided by Jehovah. Jesus is the covenantal lamb that's provided to bridge the gap between these two covenantal mountains. As we keep the commandments, we can partake of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and receive all that the Father hath given us. So again, my invitation to you is as you read these chapters this week, look for the covenant path. Look for what God does for us within the Abrahamic covenant. Look at how he wants us to be loyal to him and faithful to him. And then look for how does Lehi reveal Jesus who is the path. As you find learning paths in the Gospel Explorer this week, you can take the left path to immerse yourself in a study of prospering in the land through keeping the commandments of God. Obedience truly brings blessings. The middle pathway focuses on the concept of being redeemed by the righteousness of our Redeemer. This path will even lead you to the well-known talk by Brother Brad Wilcox called His Grace is Sufficient. The third pathway will guide you into a study of the fall of Adam and Eve. All of these resources are designed to help you dive deeper and become closer to Jesus. We hope that this week's selection of videos helps you to feel the love of God to a greater degree in your lives.